0: This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Missouri legislators are back from spring break and now a mad dash to balance the budget, figure out I 70, and where we stand with transgender health care for children. Elisa Nelson and Marshall Griffin will join me in studio to preview the second half. We'll also hear from a world class trumpeteer who got his start in Jefferson City. Missouri is riddled with sinkholes. New ones are constantly being discovered. One person actually drove into one in the Kansas City area a few weeks back. To get a better understanding of how they form and just how common they are, Cameron Connor is here with University of Missouri geology professor Martin Apold.
1: The sinkhole is is basically just a place where, as the name suggests, the land has has collapsed into an underlying hole underground in the subsurface. And the reason they form is because the, the rock, the bedrock below the land surface, has uh, dissolved away by groundwater. So sinkholes tend to form mainly in limestone rock. Uh, They can form in a few other kinds of rocks, like uh, what we call evaporite rocks, like salt, but those are much more, much less common. So limestone is the main kind of rock in which sinkholes can form, and we have a lot of limestone around in the central United States, including in Missouri.
2: And from that, you say that it's very common from rock like limestone, and there happens to be to my understanding a lot of that in missouri so i'm assuming these sinkholes right. are pretty common in the state
1: yes uh although not not homogeneously distributed so there are certain parts of the state that have them more frequently or more commonly than than others around us around columbia there's a there's a trend of sinkholes uh that's kind of on the west side of town that goes up over by kind of gillespie bridge road up through rocheport and there's i think the largest sinkhole in the state is really close to the uh, to the uh, I-70 bridge over the Missouri River, so um, so you see many more sinkholes in that area than in other parts of the state uh, that that also have limestone. So uh, limestone is one ingredient. So another factor that you need to have is uh, is uh, kind of one thing that helps make the sinkholes form is some kind of preparation of the of the bedrock, perhaps through, through some pre-existing fractures or zones in the rock that are more permeable that allow groundwater to flow through. Groundwater is the agent that that ultimately causes the sinkholes to form because it dissolves away the limestone over time.
2: Okay, and for those of you just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We are here speaking with Martin Appold. He is a professor at the University of Missouri in the geology department, and we're giving an educational session on sinkholes, and this comes after an unfortunate accident where a car actually came into a sinkhole as it happened. Martin when you – I'm looking at a map here of sinkholes, and like we've been, we've been uh-huh. talking about so far, there are quite a few of them here in Missouri. And from what I've been reading, it, right. I think it's approximately 16,000 or so, and that's just from the ones that are known. And it looks like a majority right. of them, from what you already said, were in Columbia. But then the second half of the – or I mean the, the the lower southern half of the state is where right. it looks like a lot of these reside and also on right. the east side of the state. So right. from what right. we've already been gathering yeah. and describing, what exactly – why? Why in these areas? I guess if that makes sense to go a little further.
1: Right. right. So uh, in general, uh, more of the sinkholes form in, in southern Missouri than in northern Missouri. But there is a trend along the Missouri, along the Mississippi River, uh, along northeast uh, in northeast Missouri as well. So what we have going on. So there's limestone throughout the state, and, and a lot of that limestone is right close to the earth, to the land surface. But in the in the southern region, there tends to be a bit more topography, which then drives faster rates of groundwater flow which then lead to faster rates of dissolution of the limestone, which then creates the sinkholes. So the sinkholes are basically cavities, basically caves, if you will, that that rise close enough to the land surface that the overlying rock is too thin to support its own weight and then will collapse into that underlying hole.
2: Gotcha. And then for Missourians that are trying to picture this in their head, for these areas, basically, (laughs) anywhere you can imagine very large bodies of water is where a lot of these are near, especially when you're talking about the Ozark area and around the Mississippi River and stuff. It looks like, at least from what I am assuming, is that's why there's also a lot more in those areas because of that mixing of ingredients and more water, plus more topography with limestone. It equals to to these sinkholes. Okay. Gotcha. Right.
1: and it's more groundwater that does the work of the of dissolving rock than the surface water. So underneath the land surface, water is percolating and flowing through little pores, little holes that are in the rock, fractures and that. Over time, because the limestone is will dissolve easily in water, those holes get bigger and bigger.
2: Okay, okay. And I guess just to go back to the definition of a sinkhole itself, just something that's coming to mind from a curiosity standpoint is, so once it's collapsed— any sort of ground in general, is that when it is defined as a sinkhole or any time that the ground in general or the area is jeopardized of ha- that happening is right. considered one? Yeah, that's no, a good question. So
1: I have, once once the, the, the collapse has actually occurred, then that would be considered when the, the the sinkhole. So there are certainly many areas that are that are at risk of, of forming sinkholes, but until the, the collapse actually happens, it's not yet considered a sinkhole.
2: Okay, got it. That, that was going to be my follow-up question. So there, there's a, a lot of potential. <laughs> out there for there to be a heck of a lot more in the state. Correct. Right.
1: And over time, they can kind of fill in with other sediment and soil and and debris and kind of fill in. So they aren't always permanent features in the long term.
2: So some more of these, I guess, I don't necessarily want to say a geologic family that sinkholes rely into, but I'm assuming it's technically related to things like caves and springs and such of that nature.
1: Correct. Correct. They, They are. So. All those kind of are grouped together in what we call karst topography, which means a a landscape that's been altered by limestone dissolution, uh, which involves the formation of sinkholes, the formation of caves, and springs tend also to be more commonly associated or more common in that kind of a landscape.
2: Okay, got it. And just to give a general direction, so... We already know that for listeners out there that are listening to Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri, that sinkholes can be big enough that a whole car can can fit in them, but <laughs> they can be a lot smaller or, in a lot of cases, a right. heck of a lot larger, right?
1: <laughs> right. So they vary uh, widely in size so from small features that are no more than a few feet across to many you know, tens of, of yards, hundreds of yards, in some cases, the biggest ones uh, across in diameter. So, yes, they, they, they vary quite a bit in, in their diameter. So, for Sometimes some... it can be very deep too. Yes,
2: yes. By deep, how deep are we talking? Are we talking in fifty feet, a hundred feet, more than that.
1: Yeah, I'd say that'd be on the, on the higher end. So, in Missouri, that would probably be a, the the deepest ones would be kind of on that of, of that scale, and they can be shallower. So, and here locally in Columbia, one good place to see sinkholes and karst topography in general would be Rock Bridge State Park. So, the Rock Bridge itself and and the caves that are there. And, and the depressions that are in the land surface, that's all all this this karst process, dissolution of limestone by, by flowing groundwater.
2: Okay. And for can a lot of these sinkholes, I guess, happen spontaneously, like all of a sudden the right domino effect happens and it can cause this massive amount of land or small amount of land to cave in, or is it something that's always an integral process? How exactly does the timetable work?
1: Yeah, so I think it, it is pretty common for them to collapse all of a sudden. Uh, you may see some some uh, some slumping, some depression that's taking place, but it is pretty common for them for there to be a, a sudden collapse over a period of, of seconds, basically, where the where the hole then really forms.
2: Okay, wow. No, this but is in some cases,
1: it can be more drawn out.
2: For areas that I guess that you commonly work with with sinkholes, I don't know how commonly you with with your research work with them per se. But what maybe what are some other areas around the state that are I guess statewide? nature events that Missourians can go out and see, kind of like a Rockbridge State Park around the state. Do you have any of those examples where people could go see these?
1: Yeah. So I think here locally in in Columbia, Rockbridge State Park would be a good example.
2: It's pretty common to see them
1: in the the, throughout the Ozark region in the the southern half. So I'd say uh, another good place to see some pretty impressive karst topography would be Ha Tonka Park. Uh, Springfield, Missouri. There, there, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of sinkholes around there. So if, I know a few years ago there were a number of sinkholes that formed around the Nixa area outside of Springfield. Uh, so there were some some serious problems there with sinkholes.
2: Missouri is definitely one of those states that, from a geologic perspective, is <laughs> fascinating in so many different ways. Yes. I'm, I'm glad that we can have an educational sure. session like this for so many of these interesting events because it also not only I guess maybe when people think of sinkholes, it might be a terrifying thing like this can happen at any moment. But in all reality, it's more of just like a, a wonder of Missouri that you can go out and see. Martin, thank you so much yeah. for this okay. session on it. Is, is there any other important information that you have for us about sinkholes or about maybe some common signs of them happening or anything that can come to mind? Well, I think if you're
1: have if you have, uh, if you're interested in purchasing land or building on some land where you think that would, that would be a risk, it definitely would be worth hiring a, a, a professional, an engineer, to come out and, and evaluate the land. Uh, you know, there, there are plenty of limestone, terrains, uh, landscapes that are stable and aren't at risk of, uh, of, of sinkhole formation, but, but they're, they're common enough. And if there are some in the area, then there's a good chance that more will form. So I would definitely have it checked out.
2: All right, and once again, this has been Professor of Geology at the University of Missouri, Martin Apple. We've been talking about sinkholes today. And, Martin, thank you so much for your time here on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I see
3: you finally got a new helmet.
4: I did. Bought it cheap online. (laughs) (laughs) Follow me. We'll turn off here. I'm right behind you. Watch the cars. They can be crazy.
2: Was this young man hit by a car?
5: Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet.
2: It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart, buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office.
6: I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.
7: I've been driving trucks for a long time. And safety is my number one priority. I know that my truck has huge blind spots. That's why I remember to check my mirrors often for smaller vehicles. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're behind the wheel, try to avoid lingering in those blind spots. It can be dangerous. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at
8: www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention. How your baby or toddler plays, learns, talks, acts, and moves give important clues as to how they are developing. If you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track, please call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229.
5: Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved?
3: Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking?
5: If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic.
0: Families
3: and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon, Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org/help. this is show me today the voice of missouri i'm bill pollack elisa nelson and
0: marshall griffin back with a spring break over for the missouri legislature now marshall and elisa have been working and they've still been busy no break for them and they're here to talk about what to expect in the second half of the legislative session elisa we'll start with you uh, what is one of the major items that we can expect right out of the gates
9: the budget, the state budget, that's the one constitutional requirement that the legislature um, is is supposed to do is have a passive balanced budget. So I think that Missouri can expect the bulk of lawmakers' time to be spent uh, working on the budget. Uh, some of the key items I think we should be paying attention to is what will the governor's I-70 expansion project ultimately look like i've heard that the house might really um has some some pretty big changes to the governor's plan um there might be more of local pet projects pet roads projects in there as opposed to as opposed to the i-70 um focus on i-70 more so so i think uh we should definitely pay attention to that i think the price tag.
0: yeah what's the governor's plan for i-70
9: well that one would expand uh to six lanes in um total around st louis kansas city and columbia so the the real bottleneck parts of the state um and so and that's about a I think like an 869 million dollar proposal, um, and so.
8: 859. If I can just
0: jump in.
9: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, a lot. Yeah, a lot and, of money. Uh, and
0: so, how did the yeah. but how did the legislators want to change that?
9: Well, uh, I'm hearing things like that there might be uh, more of a focus in the House. On completing some roads projects in their local communities, not necessarily on I-70, maybe like I-44 in Springfield. That's one of the places um, during some House committee work that there was some money diverted from the I-70 project uh that the governor is proposing to I44 in the Springfield area so that would be one but i'm i'm hearing that there there could be others other local roads projects now i hear that um that then the senate could come back and and look a bit more like what the governor is proposing so we'll see how this shakes out so that's one thing to keep an eye on in the state budget i also think um you know missouri's struggling to fill jobs in state government and in the private sector. Um, So the governor is asking the legislature to put more than $800 million into helping to address Missouri's child care needs, because it really is, um, according to the governor, according to other um, folks in state government, that's what's holding us back, is we don't have enough child care options. And so um, I think we should we should look at that to see, you know, is that going to be something that's going to help our overall economy and how much will that look like? And then I also think this is a really interesting one. Um, his budget proposal includes about 100 new children's division worker jobs, um, and he wants to use 22 million dollars to do that because, um we have about 14,000 kids in our um, foster children in the system. And so the, the whole point in having these workers would be to focus on preventative work to prevent those kids from going into the children's division system so that's another one i think we should keep an eye on
0: that's elisa nelson and marshall griffin joining us as the missouri legislators back from their spring break and to go back i don't know if this ties into the i-70 project that governor parson is looking at marshall but um, why do some lawmakers want to take control over Modot's funding
8: well it, it all comes down to a lawsuit that uh, is currently pending um Pardon me there. What uh, basically what it is, is that um, MoDOT felt that uh, their workers needed a pay raise. And, you know, obviously state workers need a pay raise. But uh, MoDOT kind of uh, decided to take the first initial step since uh, MoDOT's uh, MoDOT funding is not subject to the legislature. So when it, when the legislature is putting together the state budget, it does not include MoDOT's budget because they have separate funding sources and, you know, from, uh, the, you know, from the fuel tax, from, from other sources. And so they set, they set their, um, funding sources and they, and they decided, or actually I should say, perhaps it was the director, uh, Patrick McKenna, who, uh, who got the ball rolling on pay raises for MoDOT workers. Uh, but when uh, it came time to implement those pay raises, the uh, governor's office of administration said no. The highways and transportation, the highways and transportation commission then filed a lawsuit, and that has uh, brought this issue uh, to the forefront this session, uh, to where now there is a, uh, it's not technically a bill, it's a resolution that would require MODOT funding to be put under the umbrella of the legislature, so the legislature every year would decide how much funding Modoc gets. It's already passed the House, it's it's now in the hands of the Senate, and if the Senate passes it as is, or if there's some type of final negotiation, it would not go to the governor, it would instead go before Missouri voters, probably in November of 2024, or could be sooner than that, but probably sometime next year.
0: Marshall, uh, another story that you've been following is a, a bill about transgender health care for children. Um, are we going to see some more on this uh, in the second half of the legislative session?
8: I would expect something to happen on it this very week, uh, right when when the filibuster brought things to a halt in the Senate. Uh, actually, one day early uh, than than what they were planning on for before going on spring break. Uh, that it was because of the filibuster by the Democrats trying to stop what was called the uh, Safe Act, which is uh, saving. Let me see if I can actually get the. The actual definition of what this stands for, Missouri Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act or SAFE Act, is sponsored by Mike Moon, a Republican senator from southwest Missouri. And uh, the Democrats have been blocking that bill. Now, uh, he was rather angry that uh, the Senate adjourned one day early and he wrote a letter. And in this letter, he basically says that uh, that he and uh, seven other lawmakers will do whatever it takes to make sure that this bill gets passed uh, they're they're not deterred by any threats by the Democrats to uh, slow down other legislation, including threats to uh, to slow down the state budget or to block the state budget from being voted on. And in fact, in his letter, they say they will they will do whatever it takes to make sure that not only does this bill pass, but it, but that it passes this week. So this week's going to be very interesting in the Senate.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of drama there. That's Marshall Griffin, Elisa Nelson, joining us as well here on Show Me Today, spring break over for the Missouri legislature, and we'll finish up with this. Um, education bills are uh, always uh, at the forefront, it seems, Elisa. Are there any that are picking up steam here at the halfway point?
9: At this point in time, I would say an open enrollment bill is. It's about halfway through the legislative process, so... um it's a house bill and it would allow K-12 public school students to go to a school district outside of the district that they live in. So um, I, I don't know when the Senate will bring this up, but it, it it had enough support in the house and it's a bill that the legislature has worked on for the past, oh, three or so years. So that's a one I would, I, I think that has gotten, um a, you know, uh, further along than any of the other education bills that I can think of, I, I do think it's important to uh, also watch. Will the will the legislature include pay raises for teachers, and how much would that be? Uh, that is. It, that is something something the governor has um, started. He, he put that in his budget proposal last year and he wants the legislature to continue that effort this year and in years to come. So um, it'll be interesting to see if that makes it through because, you know, we do have a teacher shortage. And um, when you have a teacher shortage and you're filling it with less experienced folks, that is going to have a, an impact on the quality of education and on student performance. Um, Then there's also, I'll say this one isn't as far along, but it's one to watch, um, and that is the Don't Say Gay Bill. Um, Now, um, it had an initial public hearing in the House, and what this bill would do is it would ban school workers from discussing, like, gender type of identity and sexual orientation with public school students in most instances. And so um, the bill would actually go further than the one in Florida um, because Missouri's would include high schoolers, whereas Florida's does not go quite as far. So whether that gets across the finish line, I don't know, but it is definitely a talker.
0: And then uh, for either one of you, here it is. It's uh, March 21st. What's the what's the last day of the session?
8: That's, uh, you, you would ask that right when I, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, when is it? Yeah, when does uh, it We then? do. Well, I do know this. It will be the Friday after the uh, budget deadline.
0: Okay. I, so, but is, it, is that in May? It's in May, right? It is
8: in May. Yeah, yes. okay. So it's usually, right. usually it falls around the second or third Friday in May, depending on uh, the calendar. Gotcha.
0: Okay, yeah. So it's about two months then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So it's going to be busy then. They're going to be busy. There's a lot on the table, it sounds like.
9: And it will be a mad dash at the end, you know, because uh, there will be a lot of focus on the budget. And then, you know, once that budget is done, then the legislature can solely focus on, you know, getting a, a bunch of work done that doesn't include the budget. That's when towards the end of the session, you'll start to see these uh, what are referred to as omnibus bills. So a lot a, a bill with all these different um sorts of bills attached to it basically and um so it becomes a a, a massive bill yeah. so you might not see as many overall bills but there are a lot of bills within those bills
0: yeah gotcha no it makes sense that's a that's a great way to explain it all right well the second half of the missouri legislature has started elisa nelson marshall griffin joining us thank you for the update and um you know we'll obviously uh, catch back up with you and, and get updates as they continue thank you so much this is show me today the voice of missouri
4: because when you talk, they hear you.
7: For more information, visit underagedrinking.Samsa.gov.
6: Email from school. about the incident today? Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on?
4: None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night too. Did you have a clue?
6: No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids.
4: Half the time, it's rumors.
6: It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you are ever concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult.
0: We're back on Show Me today. A world class jazz trumpeter got his start in Jefferson City. He's back in his home in Paris, France. Ashley Bird talks to Herman Mahari about his path across the world.
11: Well, I am in Paris, and I just got off of um, two tours. One that was at, uh, I was about in Finland for eight days with a with a guitarist and his nonette. Um, and before that, I was in the I was in the Midwest performing with my group.
4: And your group in the Midwest. Uh, tell me more about it. Well, it's uh,
11: it's it's a group. It's 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 essentially it's my band. Uh, it's under my name, Herman Mahari, and uh, we were celebrating my most recent project. called Asmara. It's my third disc as a leader, and um, it's a uh, it's 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 music that celebrates actually my my origins, which are, although I'm American, my origins are, are from Eritrea. Both my parents were were born in, in the East African country of Eritrea. And so it's a music where it's it's the mix of jazz and Eritrean music.
4: You have Eritrean background. We also are talking to you on show me today today, because you started in Missouri, you had a trajectory from Kansas city. Um, tell me about your Missouri, Missouri roots first.
11: Yeah, so I was born in Dallas, but then I moved to my family moved to Jefferson City around when I was about four or five, and uh, so I grew up in Jefferson City, um, and I and I didn't move, I didn't leave Jefferson City until I went to to Conservatory College at in Kansas City. So, uh, essentially, my childhood was was in Jefferson City, Missouri, but I started playing music in the in the. In this, in this, in the music, program, in the music schools, in the school, uh, the mi- middle school, I decided to play the trumpet, and I joined the middle school band in seventh grade. And within a couple of years, I was actually playing quite a bit around mid-Missouri uh, with with Michelle Van Hoos and her family band. Andrew Van Hoos went to school with me, her son, and so she was kind enough to let us start playing with the band, even we just, even though we just got started. And by the time I was in high school, I was performing all around mid-Missouri every weekend. So I, I didn't have like the typical high schooler experience in that sense in the sense that I was already performing Friday, Saturday, Sundays, almost every weekend, both with Michelle Van Hoos's band, some other groups that would start to calling me, and then also I started to build my name as my own entity and started doing my own stuff as well.
4: Before we get to where you are now, I got in touch with you through a parent of a jazz player from Kansas City who had played with you and know you. It, there's this jazz presence. There is this jazz roots presence in mid-Missouri. So I've learned that that community exists. How would you describe that to the rest of the state that doesn't even know that's there? Well, it's funny because it's it's jazz
11: music is an American music that in many ways is taken for granted. But it was uh, a popular music at one time in terms of actual pop music. And it's also the foundation for other, all the other types of American music we love today, like rock and funk and even hip-hop. So jazz is very important. And the people who like jazz are very much a community. And so uh, we find each other, not just the players, but the, 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 pe- the people who listen to the music and who, who are aficionados of the music. They all kind of find each other and... And even, for instance, even within the band program that I was in at Jefferson City High School, the ones of us that were very serious about jazz music, were, we were really close. And then the people, for instance, you were speaking of one of my closest friends, Brian Stever, um, a great drummer. He was a Halias, but we found each other. I made friends with Wade Ridenour from from St. James, from near Rala, and I made friends with... Uh, Peter Schlam, a great uh, vibraphonist from St. Louis, and Zach Beeson, a great bass player from Columbia, and these are people who I've I've played with
4: throughout the years. So you went from Jefferson City to UMKC, which has a fantastic music program, and and then how did you make the leap to travel the world? Well, um,
11: so at UMKC, I I had. The opportunity to meet other great musicians, and while still in school, I formed a band with some of my classmates and called Diverse. And we decided to enter a competition in Boise, Idaho. We went out there and made a name for ourselves. We won, which gave us a record deal, and that was kind of the first foray into doing things out, you know, away from the area, so to speak, uh, with this band. I started setting up tours around the US and also while I was at UMKC, the professor at the time there was Bobby Watson, who's a jazz legend, and he took me on my first international trip. We played a festival in Switzerland. And so these experiences culminated by, into like when I graduated and I decided, okay, let's take Diverse to Paris, 2010. And we stayed in Paris for a month. We had a few concerts in the city and a few other concerts in Europe and Barcelona and Switzerland. That led to me having more opportunities. And over the years, I kept coming back to Europe every year to to play and tour um, while still playing a lot in the United States, a lot in Kansas City, of course, which has a very, very vibrant jazz scene. I started doing all types of other music as well. And eventually uh, I decided, okay, a lot of my work is in Europe. You know, I, I could make the move, a move, a, a big move people often make is, is to New York. But I said, no, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing a lot in Europe and I want to kind of push that a little bit further and, and see how far I can take it. And so I moved to, to Paris in 2016 at the end of 2016.
4: And we're talking to Herman Mahari, jazz trumpeter from Jeff City, but also from Eritrea, at least your roots are there, and if I were to listen to one of your songs uh, on your new release that gives you the flavor of uh, the Eritrean culture, what what song would you pick and why?
11: I think a good one would be um, Who Dared It. And this one I wrote for my father, who passed away a few years ago. Um, and Who Dared It comes from the, the city called Mendefera. So Mendefera. Is where my dad's from and the, and the literal translation is who dared it. Um, and I think this piece represents Eritrean music in, in the melody which is very there's a very catchy melodies in Eritrean music so you recognize this melody um, and then the it, it transforms from a jazz groove into an Eritrean groove.
4: about a place that you're most proud or excited to have have played Uh, okay i'll answer okay i'm gonna
11: answer it in multiple ways my favorite place so far that i've gone to to play was japan i've been twice and i love i mean i just love japanese culture and everything about it so that was already maybe going to be an obvious thing for me but also the people there are fanatics for jazz so they are yes very much fanatics um so I recently played at the Folly theater in Kansas city and it was, so Kansas city had, in my time there had, uh, I developed a very special, special relationship with the city. Um, to the point that they, they, they feel like, you know, they own me, <laughs> 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 which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, but I, in that time, I, you know, I, early, you know, I spoke about how I became part of the jazz scene and all that, but I, I was very integral in the art scene, uh, all kinds of music, and also all the like the restaurant scene, the the um, uh, I mean, I, I just knew I knew everybody in town. It was crazy, just because I I was really doing all kinds of things, setting up events, um, and 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 so there was just was a theater full of six hundred people who just loved me, um, and there's this shared love we had. And the it was newly renovated just now the Folly Theater, it was a wild show. They didn't they didn't want me to stop playing, and it was just the craziest sensation. And I said, and I was thinking in my head, I can't recreate this anywhere else in the world. I just couldn't, you know. There's just this relationship that I that I have with these people, that I can't, you know what I mean. And they're just to do it on that stage which is... A, I've seen some of my favorite artists on that stage. It was a full circle moment. And then the next day, I go to Columbia, and, and I'm playing for people I haven't seen in 10, 15 years, and I play for my uncle and aunt. Um, there's a song, actually, I do that 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 samples my my uncle's voice where he's talking, and I, and I play along with it. And it's the first time I got to perform this piece for him. It's a tribute to his
4: brother, my dad. I've had the pleasure of talking to Herman Mahari, a jazz trumpeter who's now in Paris looking out his window. I'm looking out my window at Jefferson City. He's come a long way from Jefferson City to Paris, France. Thanks for being on our show. Show me today, The Voice of Missouri. Mom and dad used to argue about everything, especially about dad's drinking. My family went from totally crazy to quiet, calm,
2: and even peaceful when mom started going to Al-Anon family groups. I wanted a better relationship with Dad, so I asked Mom if she would take me to her Al-Anon meetings or to Alateen. I'm sure glad I did. If someone's drinking troubling you, you might be surprised at what you can learn in an Al-Anon or
5: Alateen family group from people just like you. Call 1-888-4-AL-ANON or go to alanon.org. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved?
0: Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking?
5: If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is
0: an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon, Al-Anon and Alateen can
3: help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org/help.
5: If you're talking, they will hear you.
3: We return to Show Me
0: Today. I'm your host, Bill Pollack. A bill was recently presented looking to prevent requiring employees from signing what are called diversity statements. It's a controversial piece of legislation that's resulted in heated discussion. Anthony Moravith talks with the bill's
10: sponsor, Representative Doug Ritchie. I am uh, excited about the, the effort that uh, this bill is, is a part of, and that is to protect diversity of thought, on our state university campuses uh, throughout Missouri. Uh, What House Bill 1196 ultimately does is it uh, prohibits the activity that that unfortunately is occurring in measure uh, already on our campuses here in Missouri, uh, where individuals that are interested in a particular position on campus, uh, whether it would be in the context of a library, uh, some other type of staff position, up to and including a faculty position, uh, they're being asked for Uh, A diversity equity inclusion statement and within that statement the the uh, the interest is that they will speak um, in the affirmative that they will talk about their experience with it and the degree to which they are uh, supportive and or even trying to expand uh, DEI efforts and to the extent that they um, communicate Uh, in in a way that's deemed credible uh, then it increases the likelihood of them being able to receive that position and or tenure. You know, this is obviously unfortunately, uh, obviously also being utilized in promotional decisions, you know, promoting Um, individuals who are already uh, on campus. Uh, There's also some evidence as well that is, um, you know, focused on the way in which students are being expected to communicate in particular ways regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. So my concern here is that that kind of activity actually works against, in a state university context, diversity of thought. And, you know, at the end of the day, university education on a State University campus diversity of thought should be something that we all value and target and anything that we do that begins to erode diversity of thought and begins to shift the, the staff and faculty more to a homogeneous uh, way of seeing things um, is a detriment to quality higher education.
12: So a follow-up to this would be You're looking to basically prevent institutions from having students and staff signing this type of uh, document, this type of statement. So uh, if this, in fact, passes, are there ways that um, applicants could be vetted outside of signing these uh, DEI statements? Uh, To be clear, they're not they're not being asked to sign a a
10: document. Uh, They're being asked to provide uh, to to provide. Put, um, to put in front of a body of decision makers what their perspective and experience has been in the DEI space, um, you know certainly if this um, this bill uh, becomes law, which I would hope it would be, become uh, law. There, there can always people. We're all very creative, right? Uh, I'm sure that there will be uh, efforts uh, on the part of some to try to find a way to get around um, this prohibitive language. What I am encouraged by, however, is the fact that our state universities that have that we've made contact with regarding uh, these very known instances where there are job postings requesting this kind of uh, statement, uh, they have recognized the problem. Uh, that this uh, is and they are uh, self-policing and they're actually removing those kinds of uh, requirements or, or requests for DEI statements. So I find that to be uh, encouraging that our administrators are, are doing what they can to respond uh, to what is um, uh, present. and. You know we could talk more about how how these things are emerging uh because in most instances i don't know of any instance where the president of a state university was aware that this was being done uh, so how is it happening well we could talk about that if there's interest but um yeah i think that right now um, state universities are beginning to see the problem of this uh, there's a national move i think there was a recent study where you know 50 of, of uh, university faculty members are against this kind of thing. And you, you and I both know that uh, we don't have 50% of university faculty members that are conservative, right? I mean, the, the vast majority of faculty members in state university and campuses are not conservative. So this is something that both conservatives and, and liberals alike are recognizing as problematic. And now you have uh, national entities that are, are um, actually speaking out against this. And there are places uh, throughout the country where they're actually taking similar steps.
12: And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Republican Representative Doug Ritchie. His uh, bill, House Bill 1196, was recently heard in committee. The post-secondary education discrimination bill, you could call it, in, in a long story short sort of a way. And 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 so following the hearing, there's been what you would call heated discussion. And um, some of the heated discussion, I'm curious as to your point of view, because... Um, it, it didn't necessarily look like you were given an opportunity to respond. And that is uh, some say that this is in itself uh, not just misguided, but also discriminatory in itself. Uh, curious is your point of view. I don't know how trying to preserve diversity
10: of thought can be seen as as uh, discriminatory. Uh, what I'm actually trying to accomplish is to remove a discriminatory practice in the hiring and promotional activities on our state university campuses as well as to protect students from discriminatory uh, vetting um, when they're asked for similar statements uh, in, in different programs. So I I would reject the description that what I'm doing is discriminatory. Um, I would say that it
12: is absolutely an effort to celebrate diversity of thought. Let's conclude by asking this question uh, here in the year 2023. In the Missouri Capitol, a GOP-led House and Senate, are you expecting this passage and level of support from your fellow lawmakers? I believe I should be able to expect its passage, uh,
10: but we all know that this building sometimes can function um, very erratically. So my hope is that it will be, um, you, you know, we're going to work to uh, to see its passage. I, I would not see this as something that would be a problem again. We have general agreement from the universities. We're working on a couple of details uh, for clarity on some definitions. Um, but once we're able to get to that place, I don't see any reason why the governor wouldn't sign this. And I don't see any reason why any any Republican or, quite frankly, any liberty-loving individual in the building from uh, seeing the value
12: of this bill. It's called House Bill 1196. You can keep in touch with that by logging on to house.mo.gov. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show Me Today.